God has. I love it when he does this. That's right. Let's just bless him. Why don't you all actually lay a hand out right now and just pray for Michael? Because you know what? He's bringing the word and he's our brother and he needs prayer. Father God, we lift up Michael to you right now. We need you, God, tonight. We need your word. We might come here and pretend we got it all together, but we don't. We're all a mess here, God. We've all been through a lot this week even. So I just pray right now that um, you break every chain, you change every mind here, uh, and help us to focus in. And I pray that you just um, make your word come alive. May your word move in power um, right now and let dead bones come to life. In Jesus' name, God, we just pray be glorified, be exalted, and, and change our life. Amen. Can I get an amen? Come on. All right. Yeah. All right, brother. Bring it. Thanks. Uh, hi. How's everyone doing? How's, how's everyone doing? This, this is me trying to stir the pot a little bit, make sure you guys are still awake. That's the thing about having a, a gathering in the evening is that, uh, you know, raise, like, raise your hand if you just, like, got off work before coming here. Okay, yeah, so that means like you're at the end of a work day and are probably a little tired. And uh, Anyone here who's actually like gone back to school already? Okay, so I see like Devontae's hand, but he's like, you're, you're like an online school, right? Yes, yeah, seminary, that's right, it doesn't count. Devontae is so spiritual, he goes to like spiritual school. <clears throat> well, yeah, you know, um, gracious to everyone here. Um, you know, like David said, this is like getting into fall season. And, and fall season means that a lot of things start for people, you know, school and, and sometimes new jobs and things like that. And it is just, I, I want to just echo what David said. It's so important to prioritize the things that really matter. Um, and there's nothing that can be more important than putting your walk with God first. And so I, I just really want to encourage you guys, like, don't allow all of the things that um, are coming at you this fall to distract you from the importance of trying to grow in your faith with Jesus. And, and, you know, like, that's, that's more than just, like, an individual thing. You don't just, like, lock yourself in a closet and clench your fists really hard and sort of grit your teeth and say, okay, now I'm going to, you know, now I'm going to do that. Like, that's something that happens in community. It happens when, when people rub up against each other and encourage each other and sharpen each other. This is a group of a lot of different people. We come from all different churches, and that means that there are going to be a lot of people here that are not like you. And that's a good thing because that means that the people who are not like you have something that you need and you have something to offer to them. And so my point in all this is like just, I'd encourage you guys, like press in this fall. And one of the ways you can do that is you can do that by being an Andrew. Do you guys remember who Andrew was in the Bible? The guy who went and when he met Jesus, the first thing he did was he went and found his brother, his brother Simon Peter, and he brings Peter to Jesus and Peter becomes the Apostle Peter. There are people in your life who are going to be diving into the same kind of things you're going into this fall, you know, work and school, and they're going to be up to their necks with all kinds of things going on and are in need of encouragement, are in need of community, and they may not know that something like Thrive is here, or they may have forgotten that it's here. Be an Andrew and bring those people in and, and, and be that, that catalyst to see someone else find encouragement in their life. Okay, so there, there's my little exhortation. My real job, the real reason that, that they called me up here tonight, I'm supposed to preach on Romans 11, so uh, here we go. We're, we're in this series on Romans uh, one of the most important books of the Bible, every Christian should know the book of Romans. And what we've been doing is periodically, as the, as the book of Romans has kind of raised <clears throat> what you would kind of call uh, culturally hot topics, um, we've been pausing and taking up what we're calling hot potatoes in Romans. So topics that are culturally hot and hard to handle. So, you know, uh, several months ago, we did one on sexuality out of Romans chapter one. We did uh, a two-week little series on pornography back in Romans 6 and 7. 
Uh, we did one two weeks ago on predestination out of chapter 9. And then tonight, uh, the, the title of this message tonight is God, the Gospel, and Israel. God, the Gospel, and Israel. And that's because we're looking at Romans 11. And that's all about this subject of, of Israel. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of a, a subject you don't talk about every day. You might be thinking, you know, man, why does this matter? Um, just to kind of get us started, what I want you guys to do is um, just turn to just like maybe three or four people around you. I want you to just like say everything that you, uh, not everything, just like share with each other like a couple of, of, of things that you know about this whole subject of Israel. Just anything that comes to mind. That can be like modern day Israel. You know, I remember doing a report on that when I was like in seventh grade. So I learned all about like, you know, founded in 1948 and stuff like that. Or, you know, it could be Israel in the Bible. Just turn to some people, take a few, few seconds here and just share some stuff that you know about, about that, that topic. Okay, I'm going to call you guys back together. <clears throat> now, um, a couple people just, you know, hey, what were some things that uh, maybe you, you found out tonight from a friend that uh, you, you may not have known? Or just, you know, share some things that you guys said. It, what was that? Say? You said it snowed for the first time in almost 500 years in Israel? Wow, I did not, uh, did not know that. <laughs> okay, I man, that, I learned something new tonight. Anyone else? Uh, I, I didn't quite catch that. Okay, I heard someone talk about uh, rebuilding a temple. That's true. There are some. There's groups in Israel that are that uh, uh, believe that or wanting to do that. Yeah, Peter. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, so the modern-day city of Israel, 1948, which is what? So how, anyone good at math? Is that 71 years, I think? Yeah, okay, 71 years. So, yeah, pretty, pretty recent. Um, yeah, so, you know, like I said, this is a topic that, you know, like, man, if it weren't for the fact that, like, we were preaching through a book of the Bible where the Bible itself actually gets to set the topic, not me, you know, this would not be something that you usually think about. But we're going to talk about it tonight because the Bible talks about it. And um, as we do that, I actually need a couple of volunteers. Can I get two volunteers who want to help me pass out um, this little handout? Every time we do a little hot potatoes topic, I have handouts for you guys just to um, let you follow along. So I'll let you guys do that. And then I'm also going to need a little later on, I'm going to need two people to help read some passages of Scripture. Uh, so I'm going to, let's see, John, I've, I've had you do this before. I'm actually going to pick on someone who has not done this before. Uh, is, Emily, is that you? Okay, Emily, could you... Just put a finger in Romans 11. I want you to take the first 10 verses. And then can I get one more volunteer? Uh, Peter, okay, can you take verses 11 through 32 when I uh, call on you guys? So while that handout's going around, I want to just start by kind of asking this question, you know, why does, why does Israel matter? Why does this subject matter? And I just, three quick little things that I want to point out. First thing is, it's important to just have a biblical perspective on this so that you can get 
the news right. And the reason I say that is because, man, you can hardly open up a newspaper without seeing some kind of headline about like Middle East, Israel, Palestine, whatever it is. This is the conflict that is not going to go away anytime soon. And so, you know, as with any subject, any, you know, any subject in the news, no matter what it is, you always want to have a, a, a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective. And that's especially true with a topic that's as like frequent and as controversial as this. Up on the screen here, th these are just like some sample headlines. Um, these are actually a few years old from the last time I taught on this, but um, <clears throat> you can just see that like it's constantly all over the internet, all over the news. Uh, but I want to actually go um, one level deeper. I'd also put to you that that having the Bible's perspective on, on the Jewish people, I mean, on, this, on the nation of Israel, this actually has to do a lot to do with what it is to get world history right. That ultimately Jesus is the key to world history. I mean, it's all about Jesus, as, as we like to say around here at Thrive. It's Jesus, 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 nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. But at the same time, it's true that in order to understand the, the sort of the overall story of scripture and just even some of the things that are happening in God's plan today, you have to have a perspective on what God says about the nation of Israel. And then that kind of connects to this third little point here. It's important to sort of have <clears throat> this, you know, have to, to see this just in order to see how all the books of the Bible fit together. So everyone agrees that, that Israel is, you know, an important part of scripture because the whole Old Testament is the whole story of, of God's dealings with the Jewish people. Um, but the question is, what exactly is that role? So hopefully, you know, I know that this is, uh, you know, it's more than I can cover tonight, but I hope that just as we go tonight, that this will sort of help you get a grip on some of those three areas. So that's why this is important. That's why this matters. And the ultimate reason we're, we're taking it up is just because that's what this chapter is all about. <clears throat> so what I want to do tonight, actually, before we even read um, from Romans 11 is I want to actually take a step back and I want to take a 10,000 foot or maybe, you know, 35,000 foot overview of just when we talk about the, the, the place of Israel in the Bible, what is, it that, what is that story all about? And so the, the, the Roman numerals two on your handout, the story of Israel, what I want to do is I want to just walk you through how God was at work through uh, the Jewish people over the course of scripture and how that ties to Jesus. And I want to I do this so that way you have background for what Romans 11 is going to say. And the way that I want to I break this down is just in three parts, call, fall, and redemption. Call, fall, and redemption. So when I talk about call, what do I mean? Well, this happens way before Jesus. So if you go back to the book of Genesis, very first book of the Bible, you probably know that, that one of the most important moments in that, one of the most important characters in that book is a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is this guy that, that God <clears throat> calls out of this place called Ur of the Chaldeans. It's probably like the New York City of the ancient world. And he says, I want you to leave behind everything you know, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. I mean, imagine the faith it would have taken to step out like Abraham does and to do this. He leaves everything behind and he goes to, to this land that he, he has never even seen before. And what is cool about this is that this is a whole lot more important than just than just one man, because what Abraham, what the, the story that Abraham is a part of actually goes back even to the very Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you know, the, the very first part of the Bible, you know, Adam and Eve, they, they, they sin against God. As a result, the curse comes into the world, the sin comes into the world. But right as that happens, God 
kicks off his plan of redemption with a promise. Anyone know where this promise appears in Scripture? That's the Abraham one, yeah, which we're going to get to in just a minute. The one I'm thinking of actually comes even earlier. Genesis 3.15. This has been called, this is sort of a, a theological word here, the proto-evangelion. And the word evangelion, this means gospel, and proto means kind of first or before. And so, like, what this means is, like, this is sort of like the first little evidence of the gospel that will come to light in full when Jesus comes on the scene. Let me just uh, read this for you. So this is Genesis 3, 14 through 15. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. <clears throat> and, I will put, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now what's happening here is like God is speaking to Satan. And he's saying that there's going to come someone from the line of, of, of Adam and Eve. So in other words, a human being, a human deliverer, is one day going to appear on the pages of human history. And he is going to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, he's going to deal with the problem of sin. He'll be the one to reverse the curse, to stamp out Satan, to stamp out evil. And he'll be a human being. He'll come from the line of the woman. And as you go through the book of Genesis, all of Genesis, all of the Old Testament is one big long search for who that deliverer is. Let me give you an example of this. So in Genesis chapter 5, this is where the, this guy named Noah shows up. And Noah is eventually the guy who builds the ark and, and survives the flood. But when Noah is born, there's this really interesting thing that his father says about him. Go to this next slide here. So Genesis 5.29, Noah's father named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So Noah's father goes back and he says, you know, remember when, when, when God cursed the ground because of sin and, and, and that's brought all of this pain and suffering into the world? Well, we know from that promise that there's going to be someone who's going to come along and deal with all of that. Maybe Noah is the guy. He says, you know, maybe Noah's going to be the one to comfort us in the labor and painful toil of the ground the Lord has cursed. So, so Noah's father thinks maybe Noah's the guy. And for a while, it almost seems like he could be. You know, Noah's picked out to build this ark and to rescue this little remnant of humanity. Remember what happens, though? You know, Noah survives the flood, and then one of the very first things he does is he, like, gets drunk in a tent. Not uh, a very, like, Christ-like uh, thing to do. And so, so Noah, you know, he, he, he turns out to not be the guy. And then all through the Old Testament, it, it's like one long search for who the deliverer is going to be. And in fact, the Old Testament's a little bit like a funnel. It narrows down the promise to Jesus the further along you go. Now, what that means is the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible ties back to the one promise of God to bring salvation into the world. And, and Abraham is a part of that. David is a part of that. All of the characters in the Bible are, are tied into that. And what I want to do is I want to bring specifically the story of, of God's people Israel into this. And the way I want to demonstrate that is by, is by breaking down the promise into, into some of the different covenants that come out of that promise. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant is basically an agreement between two parties. You know, we, we use that word even today to talk about other kinds of, of, of agreements. And in the Bible, like, there are certain covenants that have to do with something that, like, God promises between himself and humanity. 
Now, uh, there are a couple things here on the handout. Covenants flow from the promise. So like in the book of Ephesians, for example, you'll notice it talks about like both the promise and the covenants. Promise is in the singular, covenants is in the plural. Because ultimately, like all of these things derive from God's promise that he will bring salvation. Covenants give more information about what the fulfillment of that promise is going to look like. And then finally, covenants can be either conditional or unconditional, whether in whole or in part. So what I mean by that is think, for example, of one particular covenant, which is one of the most well-known. This is called the covenant at Sinai, or sometimes people call it the, you know, the covenant of Moses or the Mosaic covenant. And this is where all of the, the Israelites have escaped from Egypt, and, and they're there on the mountain, and, and God says, you know, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. Now, here are all these laws. Now, if you follow these laws and you're obedient to them, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to let you stay in this promised land. But if you don't follow those laws, then you're going to be exiled. You're going to be scattered to all the nations. That's an example of a conditional covenant where in order for that covenant to be fulfilled, there were conditions that human beings had to fulfill. But the three covenants I'm going to point out to you tonight are all unconditional in the sense that like on the whole, these covenants are things where God shows up and says, I am going to fulfill this covenant come hell or high water. And so the covenant with Abraham is the first one we're going to look at. So Abraham's this guy, this guy who's called to go to this land, which ultimately becomes the, the land of Israel. And, and let me read, uh, this is the verse that uh, Matthew brought out here. Genesis 12, 2 through 3. Here's the promise God makes to this, this random guy named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now you notice that there's no conditions attached to this. God's just like, I'm just going to do it. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you do. This is my thing. I'm going to fulfill this. And what this means basically is that God is going to, this, this whole promise about a savior, what you find out here is that God wants to bring that savior through a particular ethnic family. And it's the descendants of Abraham. He promises to give them a nation. He promises to give them a land. That's Genesis 12, 7. Promises to bring blessing for themselves, blessing for others, and the promised Messiah. That's what the last part of that promise means where it says, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's talking about Jesus. He's saying that like Abraham's great, 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 whatever grandson is going to be the guy who's going to bring blessing to all the nations through through, uh, ultimately, we know, dying on the cross and rising again. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that even though God, you know, promises that he's going to fulfill this, this thing, <clears throat> ultimately, there's this obstacle of sin. Now, now, let me give you an example of this. Remember that one part of the Abrahamic covenant is this, this promise that, you know, hey, I'm going to give you this land. Now, now, God says that, but he also says to stay in the land, you have to actually obey um, my, my commandments. And what happens here, look at uh, this passage out of the book of Deuteronomy. So let me read this for you. If you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and decrees I am giving you today, the Lord himself will send on you curses, confusion and frustration in everything you do until at last you are completely destroyed for doing evil and abandoning me. The Lord will afflict you with diseases until none of you are left in the land you are about to enter and occupy. So part of this promise to Abraham's descendants was there's this land, but now you find out that, well, man, like if, if, if God's people are not obedient to some of the things he told them, then they're not going to be able to enjoy that promise. 
And so let me show you a demonstration of how, of how sin comes in and, and screws things up. Next slide here. What I have here is this little timeline. So here's Abraham. And then uh, you can see there, there's the, the Exodus when God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt. And then only 40 years later comes the, the, the actual time where they come into the land, they conquer the land. Why are there 40 years in between? The reason there are 40 years in between is that while the people are in the desert, they rebel against God. They don't believe him. They disobey his commandments. And God says, okay, I'm going to put you in time out for 40 years. So do you see how, how there's this issue here where, like, if the promises are really going to find their ultimate fulfillment, there has to be something to done about sin. Next slide here. Now we're going to look at another covenant here. This is the Davidic covenant. This comes several hundred years later with a guy named King David. And let me read you the passage of Scripture that this ties to. So this is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we find out something more about how God's going to fulfill the promise. So God's talking to David. Uh, King David is, is kind of the, 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 the high watermark of kings in Israel. And God tells David, when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring. And I will make his kingdom strong. I will secure his royal throne forever. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod. But my favor will not be taken away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So what we find out here is that whoever this promised deliverer is going to be, he's not just going to be a deliverer, he's going to be a king. He's going to be someone from the line, not only of Abraham, but from Abraham's descendant, David. You know, there's the whole funnel thing again. It's narrowing it down to tell you, okay, like, you know, it's going to be a guy from Abraham's line, a guy from David's line. And you'll notice that, that parts of this are unconditional, but parts of this have conditions. So, you know, God says, like, <clears throat> ultimately, there will come this promised king someday. He's going to reign on David's throne. He's going to be king over, the, over all the nations. But did you notice that uh, what, what actually happens is after David come all these other kings, like Solomon and Rehoboam and, and all these other guys, and, and they don't do so well. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that, like, man, these other kings, like, they screw up, they lead the nation into sin, and one of the parts of this promise, <clears throat> it says here that, uh, let's see, this is the, uh, the middle part here. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod. In other words, like, man, like, if, if, if one of David's descendants uh, turns away from me, well, then that clearly is a sign that he's not the promised deliverer, and that's going to have consequences. And so as you can see, like, the whole problem again and again is that, like, <laughs> All of these people who come from Abraham and David's line, like none of them is sinless. None of them actually um, can fit the requirements of what God tells you through these covenants to look for. And let me show you a picture of this in action. So if you go to this diagram here. So here's King David. You fast forward about 400 years. Well, what's that second little thing there? It's the exile. Where because of the sin of all of David's descendants, all of those other kings, like they're led into exile. And they're stuck there in time out for not 40 years, but 70 years. So now that takes us to one final covenant. Uh, this is the covenant in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, and we call this the new covenant. And let me read you this one. Jeremiah 31 says, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never 
again remember their sins. So here's what's crazy about all this. Like, we've found out that God is going to fulfill the promise through someone from Abraham, someone from David. It's going to involve, like, all of this stuff about, like, blessing all the nations and a king to sit on David's throne. Now what you find out is that it goes even deeper than that. That when God brings the promise to fulfillment, he is going to do something about the problem of sin. Do you see that in this passage? He says, like, I'm going to deal with your heart. I'm going to write my laws on the tablet of your heart. It won't just be like this outward thing that you have to like live up to, but it'll literally be something that flows from inside of you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out of you your heart of stone and put into you a heart of flesh. You know, and you might be here tonight. You might think like, that is me. Like I have a heart of stone. Like I just, I'm a rebel on the inside and I don't always want to do what God says. I want to live for myself. Well, the good news is that God can take out of you your heart of stone and he can give you his heart, a heart of flesh. So do you see how all of these covenants that flow from the promise, they give you more information about what the fulfillment's going to look like. They show you how all of these things fit together. Now, let me just go back to what I said, that, that ultimately these things are kind of like, like you almost can think of them as like book chapters and sort of the, the story of Israel, like how as the Bible goes along, it reveals more about how God is using this particular ethnic family to bring, to bring the promise to pass. But that kind of raises this question. The question is, well, okay, God, like, why is it that you chose to bring all these things through just this one family? I mean, I thought you were God of everybody. I thought you loved everybody. You know, what about all those people who aren't Jewish? What about all those people who are, you know, like Gentiles like me? Well, the point in all of what we've looked at so far is that as it says way back to Abraham, it's going to be through Israel. It'll be through the promised Messiah that blessing will come not just to them, but to all the nations. Let me show you a passage of scripture that points to that. This is from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be at the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Now, what you notice in this is that what God is saying is the reason that I'm using the nation of Israel the reason that I'm working through them is ultimately so this blessing will go to all the nations. He says, he says there, up in, you know, put it in blue so you can see it. People from all over the world, from many nations, will come and meet God. And, what, and what, what's so crazy about this is that like this promise, is, is, this, this is like at the, the heart of, of the desire of, of, of our world today. Like, I want to show you this picture. This picture actually is the last part of that verse, that famous line that talks about they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Do you know where this is? This photo is from uh, like right across from the headquarters of the United Nations. Like they chose to put this verse from the Bible. It's a pretty politically incorrect thing to do. This verse from the Bible up there because like this is the longing of, of, of our world of like there being peace and no longer war. And God is saying like that is a promise that I'm going to bring through this whole plan that I'm using Israel to fulfill. See how that works? So that's, 
Israel's call. I want to now move to look at Israel's fall. That's the second chapter of the story. And this is what happens when Jesus comes for the first time. Jesus comes, he offers himself to Israel as their Messiah. And in fact, when you open up the New Testament, the very first line of the New Testament says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham and the son of David. So if you were a Jewish person and you were reading this, you would have thought, Oh my gosh, he's here. (laughs) I mean, I knew from my Old Testament, I'm looking for a guy from the line of Abraham. I'm looking for a guy from the line of David. You know, if you uh, really knew your Bible, you know from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he's got to be born of a virgin. Matthew chapter 1, all about Jesus being born of a virgin. Like, (laughs) all of the planets are aligning here. Jesus was the promised Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. But here's the crazy thing is that they reject him. The majority of the Jewish people in Jesus' day, they reject him. And it's the Gentiles who accept him. And what Roman, we're going to read Romans 11 in just a minute. And what we're going to find out is that, that it's going to basically explain, like, what has happened here? How is it that this nation, this, this ethnic family that had been waiting and had been given all the clues, all the pointers for who the Messiah was going to be, how could they have just, like, not even known? How could they have rejected him? So what I want to do is, um, Emily and, and then Peter, would you guys mind reading those sections? So I think, Emily, you the first 10 verses. And then as soon as you're done, Peter, I'm just going to jump over to you and you can read that out loud. Ah, okay, oh, love it. And actually, Peter, before you read, I'm just going to cut in here really quick. Sorry about that. Um, Anyone feeling brave who can just stick up a hand and kind of give like, how would you paraphrase what Emily just read? Anyone have an idea of what the main idea is there? Going once. Going twice. Bueller. Bueller. No takers, huh? That's okay. You know, I, I, I'm a little cruel. I asked you to summarize one of the hardest chapters in the whole Bible, so I'll let, uh, I'll let the grief fall on me, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at it myself. What Emily just read 
is basically Paul saying, you know, look, the majority of the Jewish people when Jesus came rejected him. They refused to believe in him as the Messiah, but not all did. And remember, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing. Paul is Jewish. He's a believer in Jesus. He's saying, you know, remember me. Like, I'm, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. So therefore, not the entire nation has rejected him. God has faithfully preserved a remnant within ethnic Israel that have still held to faith in Jesus. And to this day, there are Jewish Christians who come, who are ethnically Jewish, who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, even though they're a very, very small number. And that's been true all the way down through the church age. And so what that means is Israel has, has rejected her Messiah. God has, because of that, set them aside temporarily. But that rejection is neither, it, it's, it's not total. That there's a, a remnant within Israel that does believe. So the rejection is not total. Now, Peter, over to you. Would you read the rest of the, the section there? And then uh, we'll keep going. That's good. Yeah, thanks. 
So, so what is Paul saying here? Um, one of the things he says in verse 25, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Now, when he says mystery, what he doesn't mean is like, oh, this is something that you can never understand. Usually in, in the Bible, when the word mystery comes about, it is referring to something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. And Paul's like, I'm now going to tell you what you couldn't have figured out on your own. And the mystery here is he's basically giving you what's going to happen to Israel in the future. You know, there's this question of, you know, man, how did God's people kind of end up on the sidelines? Why did they reject their Messiah? And Paul says, I'm going to pull back the curtain now, and I'm going to tell you what lies ahead for them. And one of the first things he says, this is back in verse 11, he says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. So what does this mean? What this means is, is that Israel's rejection is neither total, because there's the remnant, and it's also uh, neither, it's not permanent either, that there's going to come a day where God is going to turn again to the Jewish people, and he's going to take up his dealings with them again. He goes on a little further, and he says, okay, well, so, you know, now that we've established that, like, there's still a future for them, you know, what about right now? You know, what, you know, how do we make sense of kind of what we're seeing right now? We're like, all of these Gentiles, they're believing in a Jewish Messiah, you know, that we have Gentiles studying Leviticus. Like, why would Gentiles ever go and study a bunch of old Jewish laws? And that's where Paul uses this metaphor of the olive tree. He says it's a little bit like an olive tree. The, the, the olive tree is fed by the root. The nourishing sap comes up through the root. And I, and I would propose to you that that represents the promises to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of those promises that we've been talking about, especially those covenants, all of those things are the root. And, and he says that the Jewish people, they're the ones to whom those promises were originally addressed. They're like the natural branches that would have grown on that tree. Now, because of unbelief, most of those natural branches have been broken off. They're no longer tied into those promises because they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And you Gentiles, you guys are like a bunch of wild branches. Like, you don't normally belong in this tree, but God is God. And he can even take you Gentiles and he can graft you in to that olive tree so that even you can share in those promises that come through faith in Jesus. But here's his point. He says, don't you Gentiles start boasting over, your, you know, over the Jews who are now you know, temporarily cut out of the olive tree because you know, you're, you're not there because you're better than them. <laughs> you're not there because you, know, you somehow were more valiant for truth than them. You're there by grace through faith. <laughs> You're there because God is a merciful God. So don't boast over those other branches. And then here comes verse, uh, you know, verse 30 kind of summarizes this. It says, you Gentiles have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So in other words, way back in chapter 9, Paul brings up the example of Pharaoh, who's a Gentile. And remember, Pharaoh's the one who, who tries to keep Israel from leaving Egypt. His point is, in the same way that God had the right to use Pharaoh's rebellion to bring salvation to, the, to Israel, God has the right to use the rebellion of Israel to bring salvation to the Gentiles. See how that works? But in verse 26, what you find out is that that rejection is not going to last forever. That one day, there's, there's going to come a day where God will again take up his dealings with the Jewish people, and, and there will be a, a subset of them that will come to believe in Jesus and will be regrafted in to that tree. And I want to turn and look at that now. That's the, the Roman new, the letter C on the outline, which is the last part of the story, which is redemption. And if the stuff about the, like Israel's fall, Israel's stumbling, kind of surrounds Jesus' first coming, this stuff surrounds Jesus' second coming. You know, Jesus is going to come back one day. There's a lot that the Bible says about that. 
And uh, because of God's faithfulness, here's what we know is going to happen um, around the time when Jesus comes again. First thing is, the Bible prophesies that there will be a regathering of the Jewish people. And I'm going to give you three passages. There are passages all over the Bible that talk about this. Let me just give you three. This one is from the book of Isaiah. So this says, In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people, those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt and southern Egypt, Ethiopia and Elam and Babylonia, Hamath and all the different going on. Blah, blah, blah. He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. So let me just break this down. We know we're talking about Israel there. It says, you know, he's going to gather the scattered people of, of Israel and of Judah. And you might be thinking, well, you know, maybe this is referring to the Babylonian exile because, you know, that was when they got scattered and then God brought them back. But it actually says the Lord's going to reach out his hand a second time. There's going to be a second regathering. And furthermore, we know that this can't be the Babylonian exile because it says God's going to gather the Jewish people from not just Babylon, but it says all these different places, you know, Egypt, Ethiopia, blah, blah, blah. It even says from the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what's happening in our day, where there are now more Jewish people who live in their promised land of, of Israel than there are who live outside of it. And that's, that's, that's not happened for thousands of years. So let me show you another passage. This is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Now, this is crazy. God is literally, in this passage, he's speaking to the, it says, the mountains of Israel. Like He's literally talking like to the, the dust and dirt of the, the land of Israel. And he's saying, But you, mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people, Israel, for they will soon come home. I am concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown, and I will cause many people to live on you. Yes, all of Israel. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will increase the number of people and animals living on you, and they will be fruitful and become numerous. I'm just pausing here. Anyone ever been to Israel before? David has. I have. I was there just recently. Cassie was actually there the same time I was. Crazy thing is, when you go there today, you literally see, like, vegetation springing out of the desert. Like, what this is saying is literally being fulfilled today. Uh, where was I? Uh, I will settle people on you as in the past and will make you prosper more than before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will cause people, my people Israel, to live on you. They will possess you and you will be their inheritance. You will never again deprive them of their children. So this is again saying there's going to be a regathering of the Jewish people to their land. Now, you might be reading this and you might think, well, you know, again, how do we know this isn't the time when God gathered them back from the Babylonian exile? You know, Ezekiel was written right around that time. You know, how do we know that's not what he's talking about? Well, let me just give you one final Thank you. They and their children will survive and they will return. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them back, uh, I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon and there will not be room enough for them. 
Now, I'm digging from, like, the really crispy pages of the Bible. This is the stuff that, like, no one ever, you know, preaches on or reads, but this is important stuff. You see, you might be saying, well, you know, well, you know, Ezekiel, you might have just been talking about the whole Babylon exile, but Zechariah, he's a post-exilic prophet, meaning, like, he's writing after all the exiles from Babylon have already come back. And he's saying, like, there's going to be this other time when God's going to gather the people back again, and that's what we're seeing happen in our day right now. So the first thing that involves the redemption part of the story is there's going to be a regathering of the Jews. There's going to be a redemption of the remnant. And now uh, for this, this ties into what happens when Jesus will come a second time. Um, go to this next slide here. This is Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. And this is literally talking about like when Jesus is going to come back and stand on the earth. It says in Zechariah 14, verse 4, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, just to kind of tie some scripture together, do you remember in the book of Acts, this is where Jesus ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And when the disciples see this, the, 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 the angels come down and they say, men of Galilee, why are you looking up into the sky? This Jesus who was taken up into heaven from you in this way will return in the same way in which you've seen him go. And that's literally what this prophecy is all about. It's saying like he's going to return to the very same place, the Mount of Olives. And in this passage, it says a few more things. Go to the next slide here. This is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. So house of David, inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is talking about some stuff having to do with the Jewish people. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. Who do you think that could be? Jesus. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now this is so moving because what this means is that there's going to come a day when Jesus the Messiah will be reconciled with his own Jewish brothers who nailed him to a cross. Do you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers? Which I believe is actually a type and a shadow of this very prophecy. If, if Joseph wept when his own brothers were reconciled to him. Just think of how moving it will be when one day this remnant of Israel that God has preserved through tribulation that's come to recognize Jesus as Messiah will actually come and be reconciled to him in the flesh. Let me read you one more verse here. This is Zechariah chapter 13 verse 1. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now I don't know you know, how all these different prophetic pieces fit together. This is, you know, a very complex and controversial area. But, I mean, I think this verse in this, this very passage actually gives you evidence to think that, that it'll be at that time when God will, will do a sovereign work of grace, will bring the Jewish people to a recognition of Jesus being their Messiah. And I almost wonder whether the picture will be that, you know, there will be all of the nations huddled, you know, surrounding Jerusalem, the, the, the remnant of Israel trapped inside, and then they see the Messiah coming back down, and they say, oh, finally, after hundreds of thousands of years, here he is. And they'll realize he has holes in his hands. He has holes in his feet. This is Jesus, whom we crucified. And yet this verse says he will come to them and will open up a fountain of grace and, 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 and forgiveness. So there's going to be a redemption of the remnant. And it's worth saying here that, that, that what Paul says in Romans 11 is true, that there's no salvation outside of Jesus. He says, you know, if, if they don't continue in their unbelief, then they, they can be grafted in again. All of this surrounds Jesus. Let me just, I want to be sure I say that. And then one final piece, uh, the last piece of this whole part, the, the redemption part, is this will, will then lead to what you might call like a renewal of the world. 
So this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 11. He says, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And his point is, is that, man, like if Israel has rejected their Messiah and that's brought all of this blessing to Gentiles, just think what's going to happen when God brings them back in, just how that's going to bless the rest of the nations as well. And I would propose to you, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but I'd propose to you that that's where that passage from Isaiah chapter 2 that we just read is, is finally fulfilled. So that's a lot, of, a lot of stuff. I want to just tie this all together. Why does, you know, how, as a Christian, why should this matter to you? What, you know, how, what should you be thinking and feeling right now? I want to say that what this does to me is it makes me profoundly humbled for a couple of reasons. Number one is I'm not Jewish. I'm a Gentile. <laughs> and, and, and even though God's plan from the very beginning was to save all of humanity, I mean, this story is not about me. And, you know, really, of course, it's not about anyone except Jesus. But, but I, just, I just point this out to you because do you notice what Paul says here? He says, I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. And in other words, he's saying, like, my job is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. You know why I'm really stoked about that? I mean, obviously, I want to see Gentiles come to Christ, but, like, I'm almost more excited about seeing my own brothers, my Jewish brothers, come to believe in Jesus through them getting jealous of all those Gentiles inheriting salvation. Pretty humbling to know that it's not about us. The other thing I want to propose to you is that this should make you humbled because the story of Israel is, I think, one of the greatest illustrations of the gospel in all of scripture. I mean, the very nation that had the most light and the most knowledge and rejected Jesus are the very ones to whom God still says, I am faithful to my promise. I will be faithful to you even when you are not faithful to me. I mean, talk about an amazing demonstration of the grace of God. And that is the same grace that he extends to every single one of us who believe in Jesus. So this matters. This is more than just a bunch of head knowledge. Like, the reason why I think this comes at the end of the big gospel section of Romans is like, this is like one of the biggest illustrations of what it's all about. So with that said, I want to just close really quick and just kind of look at some, uh, as, as Nacho Libre would say, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. <laughs> I just have a couple of things to close with that just are kind of some practical questions about what all this has to do with kind of modern-day stuff. Uh, number one, uh, you know, there's this controversy about, man, does the, the modern state of Israel, does it have theological significance? Um, and I want to I say some kind of, a couple of things. I want to be nuanced about this, because um, this is an area where there needs to be nuance. There are some Christians just kind of say, oh, Israel, everything they do is great, and we should support the state of Israel, and rah, 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 Israel. I think it's a little more complicated than that. I think it is true that it's remarkable that Israel is a nation again. It's an anthropological miracle. I mean, they've literally been scattered all over the world. They've been persecuted like almost no other nation. And God has preserved them. There's an old story about an old king uh, who, was, who was an agnostic atheist king of, king of Prussia or something. He asks his doctor, who's a Christian one day, he says, give me just one proof, one proof for the existence of God. And the doctor's reply in three words is, the Jews, sire. He says, if you want to see evidence that there's a God, just look at how he's preserved his people throughout all these centuries of persecution. So it's a miracle. Um, and, and in fact, um, let me just show you, that there, there are people all throughout the ages of the, of, of the church who have predicted that Israel will come back to the land. So I'm not going to read these. Maybe you can uh, read them yourself. But these are all these old Christian theologians back in like the 1600s, and they're all predicting 
that Israel will come back to the land. And this is like hundreds of years before it happens. So that said, you know, it is remarkable that Israel is a nation. It's not necessarily the case that the Bible teaches that it's, it's going <clears> to, <throat> the, 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 the current state of Israel that we see today right now is necessarily the same one that will be around at the very end times when Jesus comes back. You know, theoretically, for all we know, like the second coming could be thousands of years away. There could be like another state of Israel that kind of comes after this one. Point is, it takes a little nuance to navigate some of this stuff. And, and, <clears throat> and I, I want you to just be careful and not kind of just blindly saying, oh, everything Israel does is good. You know, Jewish people, the people who run the state of Israel, they're human. They're sinners just like everyone else. There's a lot of good things that come out of, come out of Israel. There's a lot of uh, ways that they've blessed other countries. There's also a lot of things that are bad and sinful just like every other nation. So uh, that leads to the second question, should Christians support the state of Israel? Uh, now, again, this is nuanced. Um, like I just said, you know, it's not like we just you know, sort of give a blank check to every single foreign policy decision Israel makes, but... I would put to you that if the Jewish people are really beloved by God on behalf of the promises he made to their forefathers, then we should love them too. Like, we should love what God loves and hate what God hates. And that's also because we owe them a debt. Like, God used them to bring Jesus into the world, and so we should acknowledge that. I mean, I think some ways that this can look practically is, number one, you can speak out against anti-Semitism, which is still raging in the world today. I mean, think of the example of Christians like Corey Ten Boom in the Holocaust, who, you know, her family members died because she stood up against anti-Semitism and sheltered Jews during that time. You can research issues to stand up against distorted propaganda. There's all kinds of propaganda that's false about uh, modern-day affairs with Israel and Palestine. And because the best way to love Israel is to give her the gospel, we can pray for the salvation of the Jewish people, and you can support Jewish evangelism around the world. So there's actually a ministry that, uh, that reaches out to the Jewish people in Israel, which I sometimes like to support financially. You can do that too. And uh, then politically, that can look nuanced. Um, next question is, should Christians support Palestine? Um, and man, you know, the world wants to impose this kind of false dichotomy. Either you're for one or you're for the other. And I think it's a little messy, um, a little messier than that. Um, I think even though I don't necessarily know all the right kind of political decisions to support, I want to just propose to you that we have to remember that both Jewish Christians and Palestinian Christians are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should love every single person in the world, whether they're a Christian or not, and especially those who are believers. So I remember a number of years ago, there was a church in Gig Harbor that had something called Sound and Sand. It was this program that brought 10 Christians from Israel, 10 Christians from Palestine, and then 10 Christians from Gig Harbor. And they got them all together for a couple of weeks, and they just like got to hear each other's stories. They got to like see past the politics, reconcile with one another, and realize like, man, in Jesus, there's a unity that's more powerful than any political solution of man could ever be. It's pretty crazy. Uh, I'm going to actually skip this next one because of time, and then just one final thing. Um, how can I share the love of Jesus with the Jewish people? Um, you know, basically, there's not a whole lot to that other than just kind of how you'd share Jesus with anybody, but I would just say to you, know messianic prophecy, know your Old Testament, know the passages that point clearly to Jesus. And I just want to close with this one story. When I was in school, I actually met a Jewish person from Israel. And uh, I remember when he found out that I was studying New Testament, he got really excited. And he's like, oh, I want to read the New Testament with you. And I was pretty taken aback. I was like, whoa, okay, that'd be great. And so we, started, we got together, and I actually started by going through some of the Old Testament prophecies that point ahead to the coming of Jesus. And I remember I was reading one of them, and, he, and I was kind of explaining what it, what it meant. And he looked at me kind of funny, and he said, 
that's a very convenient Christian interpretation. And then I remember he asked me, he, he, remember he told me, he said, I just don't understand why there is so much continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so that, you know, that's the thing. Like when you read through the Bible, it's clear, like it's all one story, it holds together. And uh, you have the ability to, 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 to help um, reach out to, to <clears throat> the Jewish people if you know those prophecies well. So uh, that's all I've got. I want to pray for us and then we're going to launch into small groups and uh, continue on with the night. So, Lord, thank you for this chapter of Scripture. Thank you that it just brings up a subject we don't often talk about, but that we should. Um, and just thank you, Lord, that um, you love the Jewish people, you love people of all nations, um, and that you've used um, Jews and Gentiles down through salvation history to see salvation go out through Jesus to all people. Um, Lord, just help us to take to heart what this passage says and Lord, help us ultimately just to be humbled by it and to recognize how unworthy we are um, to be called your sons and daughters. Um, and just may we just walk away tonight just with a deep thankfulness for the gospel and how what you've done is just the most amazing thing um, that we can ever even imagine. Um, so Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.